0: If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 18, Revelation chapter number 18. I am glad to be back in our series in the book of Revelation. We'll cover verses one through 24, which is all of chapter 18. I was in a conversation with someone the other day, and I, I think it is assumed that the goal in our Revelation series is to treat a chapter a week. That's really not the goal goal is to treat the book of Revelation scene by scene in order to reduce the preaching text to less than that often does some violence to our ability to understand the scene itself and to expand upon a single scene usually leaves you with more than what can reasonably be managed in a particular sermon. Most of the chapter divisions in the book of Revelation land in good places. The scenes are fairly neatly divided. Chapters 18 and 19 are the exception. The scene which is begun in Acts 18 and, or Revelation 19, 18 and 1, I'll, I'll get it right in a minute, actually runs through chapter 19 and verse 10. In fact, if I were writing the chapter divisions, I would have put it after verse 10 of chapter 19 as opposed to after verse 24 of chapter 18. In other words, we have a division that, that doesn't benefit us in understanding the flow or the movement of of this scene. However, given the limitations of time, we are only going to look at Revelation chapter 18 and we will take up verses 1 through 10 of 19 next week. I point that out because most misunderstanding of Revelation is about missing the flow of the book and how a single scene is intended to convey usually a single principle or a single message. Most of the misrepresentation of the book of Revelation is the result of making too much out of lesser features of the book. What John has said with words in the Gospel of John, he now says with pictures in the book of Revelation. And I'm not suggesting to you that any of the lesser elements of Revelation don't bear significance. It's all of God's word. But I've likened this in the past to a mountain scene. If you're looking at a painting, there is a mountain in this painting. You don't seek to derive significant meaning from the bush in the foreground or the bird in the background. Most faulty interpretation of Revelation focuses on the birds and the bushes, and it misses the mountain. It would be a tragic thing to look at a painting of a mountain and to miss the mountain. mountain. But it is all the more tragic when Jesus is missed as the central focus of the book of Revelation in favor of birds and bushes that may lie in the foreground or the background. So our efforts at seeing these broader pieces of Revelation is just an effort at keeping the main thing, the main thing. Revelation 18 and verse number one, if you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. After, I saw, after, after this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He cried in a mighty voice, It has fallen, Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath, The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her excessive luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven. Come out of her, my people, so that you'll not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back in the way she also paid and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her, As much as she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in one day. Death and grief and famine, she'll be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. The kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and lived luxuriously with her will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear for torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth will also weep and mourn over her because no one buys their merchandise any longer. Merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine fabrics of linen, purple, silk and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine wheat, flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and slaves and human lives. Fruit you craved has left you, and all your splendid and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, "Woe, woe! The great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, for in a single hour such fabulous wealth was destroyed. And every shipmaster, seafarer, sailors. And all who do business by sea stood far off as they watched the smoke from her burning and kept crying out, who is like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and kept crying out, weeping and mourning, "Woe, woe! the great city where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth. For in a single hour, she was destroyed. Rejoice over her heaven and you saints, apostles and prophets, because God has executed your judgment on her. And a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, In this way Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And the voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again. And all this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery and the blood of prophets and saints, and of all those slaughtered on earth, is found in you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. You may be surprised by the time we're done at the incredible relevance of this passage, how it speaks to the situation to the life circumstances of Christians in much of the Western world and most assuredly the Eastern world today. The basic principle, the proposition of Revelation 18 is that Babylon and all like her will ultimately fall under the Lordship of Jesus. Babylon is first code for the city of Rome. Remember, we're still dealing with a letter written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So we don't have just this conceptual, abstract document with no intended audience, with no real or felt historical author. We have John, the beloved disciple, living on the Isle of Patmos under exile and persecution, writing to seven churches who themselves were experiencing very real persecution. And one of their members, Antipas, had been killed for his faith In Jesus the chapter itself does in fact have something to say about the future in fact it has a great deal to say about the future but before we get there we must note that the direct application or direct symbolism of Babylon is related to the city of Rome in this first century setting the capital city of the vast Roman Empire a Roman Empire which had been participant in the crucifixion of Jesus The execution of the Apostles Paul and Peter, as well as several others, and had now been the oppressive government hand in the persecution of the seven churches of Asia Minor and the executioner of Antipas, one of the faithful members of those churches. Babylon will fall. And there is such certainty of Babylon's fall, the fall, the demise of the city of Rome, and consequently the Roman Empire that it's spoken of as though in the past in verses one through three. Note the consistency with which John speaks in the past tense. After this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He cried in a mighty voice, It is fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, unclean bird, an unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her excessive luxury. She has fallen. This would have been an unthinkable thing for most Roman citizens in the first century. Rome believed itself to be the eternal city. In fact, there's a quote from Roman propaganda of the time in your sermon notes that reads, Rome was the city selected by the gods to rule forever, to usher in a new golden age of peace and prosperity, to extend law and order to the far reaches of the known world. It might be that some outer part of the empire, some city on the edge of civilization might fall victim to some invading army but Rome the city of seven hills would never fall at least by the estimation of most Roman citizens now consider that from the perspective of those seven churches in Asia Minor seven churches who are hunted and haunted by a government believed to be by most eternal they have no recourse no way of pushing back there is no appellate court within the Roman system There's no one who can lobby for or advocate for the Christian church. They are, by virtue of their very existence, outlaws in a land that is not their own. A word of encouragement here is that the lordship the Roman Empire appears to bear over those seven churches will be short-lived. Because Jesus is coming again and Babylon will fall. Before you get to anything else in Revelation 18, you've got to get to the reality that this vast city with such a heavy hand in the oppression of Christian people in the first centuries of the church's existence would eventually succumb to the power of the gospel. One of the beautiful things about history is looking back and seeing the way the empire itself succumbs to the preaching of the gospel. Inside of 300 years, this pagan empire, had been overrun by the preaching of Jesus, the Jewish king of Israel, who had been raised from the dead on the third day. And virtually all of the empire had paid their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Look back across history. It is a phenomenal thing that this fledgling group of a few hundred believers could bear such magnificent influence in the world. But they did. By the power of the resurrection, they did the message of revelation 18 goes further than that revelation 18 is not just to say that the city of rome would fall in the first century revelation 18 is to say that every babylon will fall regardless of geographic location or generation babylon always has fallen and babylon always will fall under the lordship of jesus We're gonna go out of order here, but I wanna show you something in the conclusion of Revelation 18 that I think can help us to appreciate better what John is saying along the way. Go to verse 21. The Bible says here, then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea saying, in this way Babylon the great city will be thrown down violently and never be found again. Now, what John has just done by vision, what he's conveying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is an echo of or an allusion to Jeremiah 51. Babylon becomes the symbol for every people, every place that opposes the plan and the purpose and the people of God. It becomes that symbol because Babylon is the place and the people of most direct opposition to the people of God in the Old Testament. For Israel's disobedience, God dispatched the Babylonian army under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar to come and to carry the people of Judah away into Babylonian exile. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was torn down. Even today, it is the most embarrassing episode in the history of the Israelite people. It was during that time that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were carried away captive. It was during that time that prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah warned of this coming judgment from God and even the promise that God would bring remedy to this judgment experienced and draw the people of exile back into the promised land. Jeremiah 51, the prophet prophesies of the destruction of the city of Babylon itself. And in order, in this prophetic way, to demonstrate the certainty of this prophecy, the assurance the people might have of the fall of Babylon, he took the written prophecy and he wrapped it around a stone and he threw it into the Euphrates River. John has taken that imagery up now in Revelation chapter 18, reaching back into Israel's past, reaching back into the history of the people of God to say that not only does Babylon here symbolize Rome in the present context, it symbolizes the Philistines in the days of David and the Babylonians in the days of Daniel. Babylon comes to represent all of the systems and institutions which oppose the people of God in the present but also in the past and then he does something to include the future look to verse 22 sound of harpists musicians flutists and trumpeters will never be heard in you again no craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again the sound of a mill will never be heard in you again the light of a lamp will never shine in you again and the voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again All this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery and the blood of the prophets and saints and of all those slaughtered on earth was found in you. Now, if it's only Rome that is in view, John's description is a little excessive. It cannot be truly said that the blood of all the slaughtered on the earth were found in Rome But it can be said that the blood of the prophets and the apostles and all who have been slaughtered on the earth were found in the midst of Babylon. In so much as Babylon comes to signify every people, every place, every government, every institution that opposes the purpose or the plan of God. Y'all tracking with me? 11 o'clock service? Anything that stands in opposition to the way, the will, and the word of God is this Babylonian system. And it still exists. There are iterations of this in the 21st century. And you need to know in your angst and frustration at your inability to answer the oppression of the Babylonian system, in your want for justice in the face of consistent Babylonian oppression, That there is coming a day when, under the lordship of Jesus, Babylon falls. It is so certain we might speak of this as done. Every city, people, place, institution, movement, nation, religion, association, or government that opposes the plan, the purpose, or the people of God will ultimately fall under the lordship of Christ. Churches of Asia Minor, it's gonna be made right, it'll be okay. Church in the Western world, it's going to be made right. It's going to be okay. Hunted church in much of the Eastern world, it's going to be okay. It's going to be made right. Those emperors, those dictators, those principalities that bear such authority over you, the social pressure that feels more than you can bear, Babylon will fall. And there's a note of encouragement to the church in this reality. The bulk of chapter 18 is about saying, one day justice is gonna be served, one day this Babylon that seems insurmountable, that seems as though she cannot be toppled, one day she will fall. But that is not a statement made without warning to the church. Go back to verse four. John says here, I heard another voice from heaven. We can rightly assume that voice to be the voice of our savior. Come out of her, my people. So that you'll not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she paid and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her. There's something said here about the judgment that Babylon incurs. She is getting just as she has given. She has intoxicated the kings of the earth with the cup Of the wine of her immorality, but she will drink in double portion the cup of God's wrath against her sin. But again, this is not a warning or a judgment that comes without a word of warning to the church. Remember, seven real churches made up of real people. The reality is that Babylon, for all of her immorality, has a certain gravitational pull on the heart of man. If it feels as though the system is beyond your reach, you can't push back against it, there's nothing that you can do to beat it. There are but two ways to go. You can grow frustrated in that experience or you can just join them. We even have a proverb in our culture, if you can't beat them, what? Join them. What Jesus is saying to us here is that we must resist the gravitational tug on our heart to give in to the temptation to join together with a system we feel as though we cannot beat. There's an opulence, a luxury, a social acceptability that comes with aligning ourselves with Babylon and we must resist that temptation. A warning to the church is to come out, get out of Babylon, get away from Babylon, flee, run away from Babylon. This is not, as it's expressed often in recent years, the idea of running away from urban areas and fleeing into the countryside and setting ourselves up well-prepared for the zombie apocalypse which is to come, right? This is in, in good balance with the call of God that we would be salt and light in the world. Salt except pressed in to what is decaying is of little benefit. Light except cast into the darkness is of no use whatsoever. This is the idea of being in the world, but not of the world. You're going to have to train yourself to resist the gravitational pull of Babylon. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not as though we wake up and decide, I'm going to join the ranks of Babylon. I'm going to effectively defect. It happens incrementally. It happens bit by bit. It happens with subtle compromise in ways that we may feel perfectly reasonable or justified in the decisions that we make, but it happens. The church must be on guard against this kind of temptation. Get out, church. Associating with Babylon puts you at risk of coming under Babylon's judgment. Any political affiliation with Babylon will do you no good. Babylon is falling. Any economic association with Babylon If you are seeking to gain materially on the back of Babylon, give it up. Babylon has fallen. It will benefit you in no way. It will only put you in proximity to the judgment of God that is inevitably coming against Babylon to associate with the immoral system. John is doing some things in a literary way in order to press at the finality of of Babylon's fall. Not only does the chapter itself say, with assurance and certainty, Babylon has fallen, but there are certain literary features within the chapter to show the fullness or the finality of that fall. For instance, there are seven voices, seven people, given voices in Revelation 18. The mighty angel that begins the chapter, the voice of Jesus in verses 4 through 8 the kings of the earth in verses 9 and 10, the merchants of the earth in verses 11 through 17, shipmasters and sailors and seafarers all lumped together in verses 17 and following, and then the mighty angel of verses 21 and following, concluding the chapter. Within that framework of seven, there are three voices that speak from the perspective of the earth. There's the merchants of the earth and the kings of the earth and the seafarers and the shipmasters. So you got John playing with, in this sort of literary way, these numbers that signify completion or fullness or finality. Three from the earthly perspective, seven total voices, all of which speak to the finality of Babylon's fall. There can be no mistaking. It cannot miss. She will fall, and she will fall forever. Babylon of the past has fallen. Babylon of the present will fall. And every iteration of the Babylonian spirit that ever arises in the history of humanity will likewise fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at the kings in verse 9. Kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and live luxuriously with her will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning they will stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, woe! the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for a single hour your judgment has come. Note that they stand far off. The kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and the sailors, they all stand at a distance. Not only has Babylon fallen, Babylon has been abandoned. There is no one to run to her help. She is left lonely and burning away under the hand of God's Great judgment. Look at verse 11. The merchants of the earth will also weep and mourn over her because no one buys their merchandise any longer. I just want to note here, I think this is an important observation. There is a total lack of conviction in the grief that the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth and the sailors and seafarers express with regards to the fall of Babylon. They only care. Because Babylon had served their financial benefit. Now y'all listen, there there are certain features of Babylon in every generation, every iteration of Babylon has a certain pattern that may be observed. If, If you were to say, Brother Wade, can you give me an example of the spirit of Babylon that lives in our day? I would say without flinching, in a in a millisecond, I would say yes. The LGBT movement is an example of the spirit of Babylon in our day. And there is a complete lack of conviction on the part of 90% of people who stand in alliance with that movement, with that Babylon of our day. You will never convince me that that much collective ignorance can exist in the world simultaneously. Anybody with one eye and half sense knows the difference between a boy and a girl. But because, yes, but because, but because it serves the financial benefit and the social acceptability of those who will parrot the propaganda of Babylon, they continue to say what they say. Total lack of conviction, no real concern, and, and this, can be, this can be observed in every generation's iteration of the experience of Babylon. Merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their merchandise any longer. Merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine fabrics of linen, purple silk and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine wheat, flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages... Slaves in human lives. You may be reading that list and thinking, John, this is a little excessive. I don't need the first century version of the S&P 500. You could have just cited a few examples of commerce and trade. That would have been sufficient for me. But what John does is rhetorically effective in giving us this itemized list of all that is traded for. And almost incidentally, although quite intentionally, including at the conclusion of that list, slaves and human lives, is quite effective rhetorically in demonstrating to us the immoral and unethical nature of the Roman system of economy. This is is not an economic system that can be immoral when it's in its excessive state or it can be taken to, Excessive links and therefore become unethical. This is an economic system which is on its face, by nature of its very existence, unethical and immoral. In fact, the way John crafts the statement, slaves in human lives, is a necessary crafting of the statement itself in this first century context. Romans did not believe slaves to be human people. They were not human beings in the mind of Roman citizens. What John is doing is effectively assigning value to the life of every human being. And by doing so, not only does he make this remarkable statement about the sanctity of every life, he also assigns immorality and an unethical nature to the very Roman system that has made the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth luxurious in their wealth. They speak in verse 14, the fruit you craved has left you. And all your splendid and glamorous things are gone, and they will never find them again. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, for in a single hour such fabulous wealth was destroyed. The third group that speaks, beginning in verse 17, and every shipmaster, seafarer, the sailors, and all who do business by sea stood far off. as They watched the smoke from her burning and kept crying out, who is like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and kept crying out, weeping and mourning, woe, woe, the great city, where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth, for in a single hour she was destroyed. Kings of the earth are grieving because the source of their wealth and political influence was destroyed. The merchants of the earth are grieving. They're mourning because the market for their goods was destroyed. The shipmasters, seafarers, and sailors are grieving because their most lucrative destination was now destroyed. But notice what they say in verse 20. Rejoice over her, heaven, and you saints, apostles, and prophets because God has executed your judgment on her. The seafarers and the sailors and the shipmasters who are profiting on the immorality of Babylon are aware of the concerns of the church and the dictates of the God of heaven. Now we're talking here about this pattern that Babylon bears in every iteration a lack of conviction on the part of so many of their subjects. And then there's this description of a willful disobedience to the plain expressed will of God. Now listen, every Babylon has its subjects who succumb to the propaganda of Babylon. There are those who by hook, line, and sinker, Babylon's propaganda who are so influenced by that that they are swept away into this tide of judgment. And then there are those who stand at some distance unconvinced by the argument, but unwilling to answer with truth the falsehoods of, of Babylon's propaganda because they're benefiting financial, financially from Babylon's existence. And then there are those usually standing atop the heap of the subjects of Babylon's influence, who know full well what the word of God says, what the will of God is, and they choose for their own personal benefit and in order to satisfy the lust of their flesh, to outright deny the will and the word of our God. Rejoice over her heaven and you saints, apostles and prophets, because God has executed your judgment on her. Babylon is grieved and abandoned by those who have benefited from her immorality, made themselves wealthy on an unethical system of finance. Now, we've talked at some length over several weeks about the promise of justice that Revelation affords us. And we ought to delight in that. In a world where justice seems to be often beyond our grasp, We ought to delight in the notion that there is coming a day when justice will be served in perfection by an all-seeing, all-knowing judge who always does what is right. There's a second layer of relevance about Revelation 18 and much of the book of Revelation that we've yet to touch on. We have the benefit of giving consideration to recent events, recent events, and not so far from us, recent events in the news cycle that I think help to illuminate what John is inviting us to. There, there is, in the promise of justice, a warning against a certain temptation. I, I've talked a few times along the way in our series in Revelation about the danger of trying to read Revelation in the news, Usually, reading Revelation in the news means trying to make some determination about what the war in Ukraine and Russia's decision over here and Vladimir Putin and what China's doing. I'm not talking about all that crazy stuff. I'm not talking about that. I have no interest in that. Let me give you an example of how to rightly read Revelation in the news. I watched and continued to watch the news cycle in the aftermath of the Nashville shooting. And I'll tell you how to read Revelation in the news. Someone who had openly, overtly taken the mark of the beast, in that that person had identified with the dragon, stormed into a facility that bore the name of Jesus, killed six innocent people, including three children, because they had been sealed by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you read Revelation. In the news. Now I'll tell you, I was watching that, and and it made me angry. In fact, it still makes me angry. To be quite honest with you, now, I was watching the report in the news of the death of the assailant came across the screen, and I said audibly, "Well, good." That's, that's the way I felt in the moment about what unfolded. The, the only good thing to come out of that whole encounter was the death of the assailant. I, I was angry. And to be frank, y'all are more spiritual than I am. But it made me want to do something about it. You know what I mean? And, and here's what I'm telling you this morning. That when Revelation promises the people of God justice it is at the same time warning us against that human impulse to take vengeance or vindication into our own hand. Do you know what it was that made me want to do something? It was not the spirit of God. It was the spirit of Babylon. And the great danger that must be observed is that the spirit of Babylon lives in the heart of every soul gathered here. And here's why it's a great danger that you might feel compelled to do something. Because the only way that you can really take up the weapons of this world's warfare is to lay down the weapon of our spiritual warfare, which is the message of the gospel. And I'm telling you, that is a far greater weapon in the hand of the saint than anything you might otherwise take up. And I'm just just telling you, at the heart of Revelation is a warning that we not revert to old and slavish ways in the advancement of the kingdom, but that we trust with eyes of faith the truth of the gospel and its power to effect change in the lives of those who may have the hardest of hearts. He saved you. He saved me. He saved Paul on the way to kill Christians by the power of the gospel. God changes life. And you and I were hell-bound haters of God. You scorned the people of God. You mocked and scorned them. You laughed at their efforts to faithfully, faithfully obey the God of the Bible. And God saved you. God saved you. And I'm not telling you that there's not some righteousness about the anger that we feel when we see such things. But when that anger begins to cross the threshold where we're leaning more strongly into the weapons of this world's warfare than the weapon that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, boldly borne forth in our hand, we've crossed a dangerous line. Revelation invites us to trust the power of the gospel to conquer kingdoms, To undermine the authority of Babylon and to turn the hardest of hearts from hell to heaven. Do you believe that? Listen, I I think, I think that we've crossed the line in our country. It not only made me frustrated as I watched the events as they unfolded, it angered me all the more that no one was willing to call a spade a spade. And over the course of a 48-hour news cycle, we had somehow managed to make a killer of six innocent people into the victim in this scenario. I think we've crossed the line. And 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 I'm just telling you, you can think poorly of me if you want But my human impulse is to begin to take things into my own hand. And it's the spirit of Babylon rising up in me. Church, we've no guarantee that things are going to be swimming and beautiful for us in this experience. In fact, the Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And when it comes, when it comes, and it will come, the temptation will be to join them in light of the fact you can't beat them, or to take matters into your own hand, which is a losing effort. What the gospel has invited us to do is to risk life and limb, because anything we might forego, God will give back in the power of resurrection. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the privilege of gathering this way embolden our hearts lord in the gospel help us to believe with great depth with confidence with the security that that rest in jesus and is willing to say vengeance is mine thus saith the lord god help us to be gospel people living in resurrection power to the glory of your great name and it's in jesus name and authority we pray amen